Hi, hello, and happy new year. Fa la 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 la. Episode thirty-nine is here. Fa la 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 la. Hello, listener friends. Welcome to 2016. This is episode 39 of the Agile Coffee Podcast, back from our 100-day hiatus. My name is Victor Bonacci, and I'm ecstatic. Ecstatic, I tell you. It's a brand new year. I've got a brand new job. I've been there for about two weeks. I just left an engagement, which I learned so much and had a great time. A great time. However, it was uh, two hours away by car. Every day, and if you know what driving in Southern California, Santa Monica to be specific, is like, well, you know it's not a very pleasant commute. Bah, humbug, I say. But that 90-day engagement is done in the books. I've learned so much, and I've got so many stories to tell. However, I'm most ecstatic about the fact that I've got my time back. In addition to the four hours every day that I get back, I now have more time to spend with the family, which gives me my weekends back. Now it's time for me to focus on the things that I hold dear, and that is coffee, coffee and friends, conversations, sharing all of these experiences with you, and for that reason alone... I am ecstatic because once again I can bring you the podcast of Agile Coffee. Episode 39 was recorded a few months back in a rather noisy restaurant. You'll appreciate that here soon enough. But I did want to tell you that since it is that time of the season where we talk about New Year's resolutions, I've got to tell you I'm not too fond of that word resolutions because once you break a resolution... Your resolve is gone. No, listener friends, I prefer the word goals. And so I typically set goals. And last year, I'm happy to say I met or exceeded just about all the goals that I set. And I had some some pretty hairy, audacious goals set for myself. This year, though, I do have a resolution. I do resolve to start recording these, at least one, episode, (laughs) at least one episode, will be recorded over Skype. So there it is. The cat is out of the bag. The can is open. The worms are wiggling around. So if you are so inclined to hit me up on Twitter, just hit me up and say that you would like to be a part of an upcoming episode, and I will do my darndest to get it going. Welcome to another episode of the Agile Coffee Podcast. My name is Vic Bonacci. You can reach me at Agile Coffee on Twitter. Today we are at Chandler's, the Hilton Cape Ray in Carlsbad, California, and I am joined by the three amigos, the three guys that I love having back on the podcast. I think this is our first time all three of you guys together uh, with us. So going around the booth that we're at, uh, Zach Boniker. Good morning, Zach. Good morning, Vic. Thanks for inviting me back. Zach can be reached on Twitter at Zach Boniker. Uh, Garrett, Garrett Barunda. Hi, Garrett. Hey, Vic. Good to see you again. Good to see you too. Garrett is on LinkedIn. We have to get him on Twitter one of these days. <laughs> and John Jorgensen. Good morning, hey. John. 
Good morning. It's really good to be back. This feels like home. So John can be found on Twitter at WaterScrumbon. The first topic that we have up here, and let's just jump right into it. Uh, Garrett, I believe this one is yours, and it says, how do you manage the first bump in the road? So what's that about, Garrett? So, you know, working with lots of teams over time, I've noticed that you get things started, there's a lot of excitement, um, but as you start to implement the process, something happens. Um, you know, you think there's going to be 40 points in the sprint, but you only deliver 12. Or you deliver a feature, you think the feature is great, but at the higher levels, the product owner is completely dissatisfied with what was delivered. And it really kind of takes the air out of a team that's going to start it up. So I really wanted to throw that out there and hear some of the strategies and tactics that you guys use on how to coach a team through one of those bumps in the road. Because often if you get past that first bump, then all of a sudden you have a little bit more momentum going and the team has more confidence in itself. And when future bumps come up, it's no big deal to deal with them. But that first bump is often a challenge. Yeah, if you think, I mean, extending your analogy, if you uh, think of a car that's at stop, right up against the bump, and going, it, it, it needs that, that it has no inertia, but it needs that something to get it over the bump. So teams are the same, right? Right. So, yeah. I think that's a great analogy. I'm actually use that in the future. Yeah. Yeah. In, in fact, um, where, where I work, uh, at Davis Space, we often tell the clients, you know, it is going to be a bumpy road and, you know, we would never let you guys just go off the cliff, but we're here riding the bumps with you. And there are going to be places where actually it's a very smooth ride and you'll pick up a lot of speed. But having those initial first bumps actually kind of gives you a goal to tackle immediately in the short term. How do we get over this? And when we get over that first bump, it's going to add to our confidence when we encounter more of them down the road. So you kind of want to be a little bit thankful for the bumps. Nothing is insurmountable for, for, for all of us collectively. Individually, though, it could break us. So let's let's kind of circle the wagons around this. Yeah, I always tell teams the first the first thing is this is going to keep happening no matter what, right? Because right. I mean, a, a a team, a collaborative team, is is going to be always have some degree of conflict or or something out there that you know they feel is holding them back that they're working on. So one get get used to it. It's a good thing, right? It's an opportunity to learn. But um, specifically to the bump, you know. Is it something that the team can take a direct action on to influence change, or is it something that's out of their control? And I think that's probably a big differentiator for me, because I, if it's something they can take a direct action on, they can start to influence change or evoke change, then um, I think we're making a smoothie back there that got loud all of a sudden. Um, if it's something in there, then, then, then we can work, I can work with the team directly on it, but if it's something that they have no control over, they're, they're being inhibited by something outside of their sphere of influence, then... Um, you know, those, those can be real organizational challenges that may take longer to resolve. And isn't that a good thing? If you've exposed more of the system and the opportunities for improvement, then you can say, okay, so it's not really, Agile is not really about just the team. It's about the entire system. So yeah. how do we now go to the people that can affect change? You know, Deming would have said, it, you know, it's not the individual that can change the system. It's the, the management. Only management can change the system. So how do we now engage management to start increasing the capacity of the system by removing the structural impediments? Um, I think that's a great point. So one small firm that I worked with a couple years ago, um, we'd gotten done with probably our first two sprints in a scrum-based model, and the CEO wanted to throw it all out. He's like, we're we're not getting anything done here. And it really disheartened the entire team working on it. And what I 
did for them is I said, hey guys, it's okay. Let me go talk to him and give him some more context around this. Because what had happened was that we were headed down a road, we were working on two particular pieces of functionality, and then another product line had an emergency, and he pulled people off it to put them on this other effort. Well, he's disrupted the whole process. And he didn't really take that into consideration. And even they didn't take that into consideration because they were so used to context changing all the time that they didn't really embrace or feel comfortable with the whole idea of, hey, we're working on something. This is what our sprint looks like. If there's going to be changes to the sprint, disruption, it's okay, but it is going to disrupt it. So I went and talked to the CEO, kind of pointed that out to him. He came back and said, oh my God, I didn't really realize that. Good point. And it made the whole team feel better. But I don't think if there hadn't been an external person there, that they would have felt confident enough to challenge, you know, a person in leadership about what had happened. And in that case, by the way, I mean, not all CEOs are as open to a broader context as you provided. Or like you say, not all not all CEOs have engaged an agile coach that can kind of talk them off the ledge a little bit. And um, one thing that I would recommend to our listening audience if they don't have those those elements in their system is to uh, go grab a copy of the Phoenix Project and um, you know give it give it to both the team and to the the leadership um, executive or, or middle level management and make a point of reading it because it's really just a fable that describes this um, you know this the dysfunction of basically um, pulling pulling people off of a very high priority high impact project to go put out a fire in another you know, high-priority, high-impact project and getting neither done rather than one or the other in sequence. So the, the, the complexity of the system and how you can mismanage that if you're not careful, um, all of that is covered in the Phoenix Project, and I really can't say enough except that we do this. You know, at Davis Space, as soon as people come out of um, boot camp, which is three days training in Agile, we say, now go out and read the Phoenix Project on your own. And there is an executive group that has a book book of the month club, essentially, and that is the very first book that we have them read. Thanks for reminding me about that part of the story. Um, I just gave three copies of the Phoenix Project to my teams oh, nice. uh, on site, and I'm asking them to pass them around and keep them on the bookshelf. But mm-hmm. thanks for reminding me of that that part of the, of the fable. I'm going to call that out because I've seen that happening where I'm at. People are like on loan to other teams, pulled off mm. teams and very disruptive. I wanted to um, kind of switch, uh, throw in another aspect of your question there, Garrett, is um, talking about the size of the bump or the size of the disruption. And if there's something that's like insurmountable and how do you recognize that it's insurmountable, like that the team can't handle it on their own? And maybe talk about that. And, and the reason I do, I was thinking of another metaphor, that of immunizations. Like when you get a flu shot, they give you just a little tiny bit of a virus so that your body can overcome it. They don't give you so much that you're going to uh, going to die, mm-hmm. but they want you to um, to deal with that adversity and and in the case of the body, right, <laughs> to um, to overcome it and prove to itself that it can overcome it and it's got a strategy to overcome it in the future. So coincidentally, I actually ran into that problem this very week. Um, I'm working on a project where the stakeholder was changed, the product owner was changed, and the team was changed. Yeah. Oh. That's a lot. It, it, almost impossible yeah. um, to rectify. And so I'm in the meeting where we have basically the old team in all three and the new team and all sorts of conflict going back and forth. And eventually what I had to do is I had to kind of get up there and say, guys, 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 we all have to step back. 
this is a very difficult situation with a lot of challenges and you can't worry about the stress right you just gotta like start working start fixing it right now brick by brick because if you try to like take it all on one time it's gonna fall on top of you and crush you and you can feel and I said this like you can feel the tension in the room right now because we have a group of people who owned you know an effort and then they lost control of that effort. It's no longer theirs. They have a new group of people who have their old work and other work they have to do who all of a sudden inherited a huge new responsibility. You know, that's a tough transition. And you can't blame yourselves and you can't worry about it. All you can do is start to work against it. That sounds like a, <clears throat> a tweet that I retweeted uh, just a couple days ago. Some quote from Plutarch who is saying, like, you know, you, you confront despair and then, um, in spite of the despair, you just you pick it up like a companion, and you can tr- continue along your journey. And um, you know, uh, another approach that you know comes to mind when we speak of kind of attenuating the virus or attenuating the the challenge that's in front of us, uh, quiet leadership, which is saying, you know, um, just uh, make the decisions that you have to at the last reasonable moment because more information is going to emerge along the way that will help you make a better informed decision. And so there's a lot of change coming up at one point, you know, that, that you, you've listed. And then the question is, okay, what do we need to do? What do we need to decide to just start moving today? How we're going to compensate for all these new people and new roles or decision-making authority being taken outside the team. What can we do just to take a baby step you know, forward is, is probably the only question that we need to answer right now. Yeah, the, um, in hearing this conversation, I'm, I'm kind of reflecting on the way that the card is written. And, and Garrett, I know it's just words, and, but words have meaning, right? So it says, how do you manage the first bump in the road? And perhaps what I'm thinking right now is by intentionally, by being mindful of not managing the problem. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, by by not trying to provide an answer, by not, be, by, right? by not thinking of it as right and wrong, mm-hmm. by just trying to explore what possible solutions we have, you know, that are dependent on the variables of size, if it's out of our influence, if we can take a, gre- a direct action, but ensuring to let the team have the ability to work out, with help and support, obviously, but work out a, a direction to the problem that works for them, that is meaningful for them, and support them on that, right? So, so maybe not managing. <laughs> um, one other idea really quick is just that <clears throat> maybe that's an opportunity to do an inspect and adapt. To say, okay, what, what, what is our situation now? How are we going to adapt to it? So, you know, one more quick note is going back to Vic's comment about having momentum and being able to overcome the bumps when you have momentum. Um, I do have a team right now who has been delivering 55 points every sprint for 10 months. And we're going to deliver 17 this sprint and but the fact is they are the best team that I'm working with right now and one of the best teams I've ever worked with and they are not sweating it at all they're like whatever we understand what happened the requirements changed on us Mm -hmm. and we're okay with that we got done everything that could possibly be done we've learned what has changed and we're going to tackle it the next sprint so in the fact that they're so confident about it and so willing to move forward not really worried about whether they're going to be judged or not just hey let's get a hold of this problem let's make it happen um, I think really speaks to the idea of momentum and how important it is really to give people a safe place to give them consistent support um, and help them be the best teams they can be because when they hit adversity then it really is no problem and then how the rest of the organization views them 
in their calm state, their assured state, you know, and, and the rest of the organization, whether it's other teams or management, is like adopting that same, like, oh, it's no sweat for them. It's all under control. That's great. You know, let's move on. It's not an issue. It sounds like there's confidence from the momentum, right? Yeah, lots of confidence from the momentum. All right, great first topic. If you have anything that you'd like to add to this or any topic, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter using the hashtag TellAgileCoffee. Next up, Zach, we have yours. It says, Common Agile Practices. What one would you throw away? Yeah, okay. So one, yeah, Only one. Yeah, well, whatever. And then go for go for all of them if you <laughs> want to be crazy. Um, so what I mean by common are just things that you know you see everywhere. You know, things that people seem to have associated with agile. What would you throw away and why? And by and, and let me give some qualification on that too. By throw away, meaning not because they aren't good or valuable. But because maybe they're at a point of being so subverted mm. that maybe it's even easier for us to do without them, right? <laughs> to transform itself. Well, I, I know the one that I've got on my mind is face-to-face communications. Um, you know, being the preferred way of communicating. Um, so that's a principle, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're talking about. Oh, well, practices. I've got practices, okay. but hey, I'll, I'll, we, I'll let's go after the principles, man. Let's show up. <laughs> go, go to principles too. I'm yeah. happy. I'm happy either way. Right, uh, and, and so the reason why I say that is because like, agile is going to be a non-starter if you say to a lot of uh, development communities, it's face to face or nothing, or this won't work so well without face to face because they're saying, look, we by design are going to have um, different hubs scattered throughout the United States and offshore, and telling. Um, for example, a scrum master or a product owner, you really need to kind of warm up to the idea that you're going to lead an offshore uh, stand-up every day that's like, you know, 1 o'clock in the morning your time. Um, at that point, I would say, you know what? Um, Agile is now folding in on itself because you talk about sustainability, and I'm here to tell you that, like, not having three or four hours of continuous sleep is unsustainable for the scrum, scrum master or product owner or any member. And I, I continue to see um, distributed teams uh, have ceremonies where one one party or one member of the team is like at an unreasonable time of day. It's two in the morning in India. Right. And, and so I, I'm saying like, okay, if we just can't deal with this, um, let's throw it out. Let's find a way that um, we can do software development in a sustainable way with um, all of the constraints that are on the table right now for for most software development um, organizations. What other? So, for this topic, if I can ask, let's get into a conversation around a lot of the things that we share. But I'm curious, what practices each of you would throw away, or principles in John's case? Who's next? Don't make me go because I'll go. Yeah, I want to throw out story points. <laughs> story points. Oh, good one. <laughs> uh, well. So I'm I'm willing to throw out uh, estimating. I'm willing, yeah. to, I'm willing to experiment with uh, with no estimates. That's that, the reason that I want to throw out story points. T- it ties into that. Yeah. 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 Not too good. I think I would I would address the fact that Scrum is considered agile, like mm-hmm. sometimes the only. Right. implementation of Agile mm-hmm. when there's so much out there and it's I guess my 
my concern or the thing that I throw out is this adherence to practice in general, right? Rather than an adherence to principle. And I think that's something that we've all dealt with before is people want to look at this very specific formula for how to make it happen and they get more obsessed with the formula than they are with the outcome. So I think if I were to throw any practice out, it would be perhaps all of the practices. Let, let's go back to a principle-based, you know, methodology where it's like, we're going to get something done here. Here's the guidelines. What works for this team? Rather than coming in and saying, hey, if you're doing scrum, you have to have these five ceremonies. You if you're doing Kanban, roles. you yeah. have to, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that's how I feel about this one in particular. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, to, to be fair, though, like, I, I'm not going to just turn around and start defending all the practices, but it seems like the practices are leading indicators to the outcomes that we seek, which is continuous flow of value of via working software to the organization. So are we saying then that we've got experience that disproves these practices as the only leading indicators? And if so, uh, by all means, like share them with me. I, don't, I can't say that I have experience saying, okay, <laughs> abandon the practice. Um, and then team, you guys tell me something that you want to do that will give us the same outcomes as agile mm-hmm. practices. Mm-hmm. So I would say, for instance, um, there's an obsession... Um, with one of my clients about having the backlog grooming meeting and having everyone at that meeting, again, face-to-face. The fact is that what we've found over time is it's much more effective for the product owner to have individual meetings with the people who are going to be working on that piece of software. Um, And the fact that, you know, that the team is pushed to have that meeting and everyone's supposed to show up and drop everything for that meeting I think is something that is detrimental to the overall success of the team. And what I'm advocating for is just a little more flexibility. Hey, find what works for that team and make that happen rather than be so married to the particular practice. And as a result, did you still have an ordered backlog for that team? We still do have an ordered backlog, but we really do put the onus on the product owner to be the one ordering it. So even though it's a separate meeting, um, it's very clear that, hey, the product owner owns that order. So they may be taking inputs from a whole bunch of different people, but in the end, they're the one that has to make the tough call. Yeah. And uh, to to give an example of how sometimes the practices don't uh, get you the the end result, you know, I've I've worked with some teams that, um, though we we plan to have meetings, you know, regarding... um, the estimating of stories, etc. We don't wind up with an ordered backlog um, for whatever reason. I mean, you know, it could be that the the portfolio level or that the the key uh, stakeholders don't settle on what they value um, over whatever uh, functionality that they value, and so can't even plan a sprint or can't even plan a larger release because the backlog is so shallow and unrefined. So yeah, if you if you ask me which would you take, I'd say throw out the practice, take the take the output, which is that ordered backlog. So Zach, we you've got a few examples that we've thrown out here of some practices that we'd be willing to throw out. Why did you ask the question? That's all I want to know. Oh, I'm just it, for me, I'm curious what practices in your experiences um, have just gone to the point where I don't know maybe you've seen them abused so much that you just can't stand them anymore. <laughs> Do you have any uh, experience? Yeah, with I them? mean, well, but 
kind of kind of like Garrett. Yeah, I would yeah. throw them all out. But anyways, <laughs> um, no. Uh, uh, if I have to pick on one, it's a daily stand-up meeting. I absolutely wish that we would stop prescribing daily stand-up meetings under the guise that that's, quote, what agile teams do. Mm. Drives me nuts. Mm. Um, I've, you know, I, I've watched daily stand-up meetings where everyone sits down. So why do you call it a stand-up? Not that you have to stand up, but it's just, the whole thing has just become this, it's a daily stand-up meeting. It's just 15 minutes and that's what a team does to start the morning. I think the most, the teams I've enjoyed the most are those that have kind of developed a system of work where they don't even need a stand. They communicate so often or regularly. They're on the same page. Why have that 15 minute? And then I, I you know, you, you, you have examples where you start pulling the stand up out and management gets upset because they don't know what's going on anymore. And that has nothing to do with the daily stand. Right. It's, it's this prescription that is for scrum. It's the, the, <laughs> the daily stand up, as it's referred to mm-hmm. everywhere, mm-hmm. is a scrum ceremony. True. It's, if you're going to adhere specifically to the Scrum framework, then do it because, right. after all, it's prescribed by that framework. Yeah. If you're any other type of team, what works for you to communicate and stay on, stay in touch with one another, or to do? Is it goal setting? Is it about uh, you know setting accountability from a, a, a Scrum perspective? I don't know. But, uh, I would say, if I could speak for the Scrum community, uh, <laughs> I, I would say that it's um, a catalyst to individual team members asking for help of other team members and getting that help. So that answers the why to do it. If the team is already satisfying that why because they instinctively ask for help and get it, I agree that that should absolve them of that practice. So have you ever seen a Mm stand-up, a huddle, a daily scrum, whatever, Mm -hmm. where there's somebody in a room and Mm -hmm. goes, John, Mm -hmm. you answer the questions now. And John, you answer the questions. Okay, thank you, everyone. Vic, you're next. Garrett, you go. And I watch these meetings, and I just, I'm also, it just fills me with this sense of misery in watching a a meeting run that that way. That's it's it's just completely mindless. Because it's mechanical. It's mechanical. It's mindless. It's done because we think we're supposed to. It's because and 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 to me, it's it's almost abusive to people. I have I have a case where I I stop the team from doing it. They're super happy. They have a system of work where they're all in the same room. They're fairly siloed today. They don't have a big need to communicate with one another, yet they were asked to do it under the guise of being an agile team, and it drove them nuts. And they're happier without it, and now management is concerned that they're regressing. So I'd like to jump in here real quick. And I hear what you're saying, Zach. No. But I think when when you step back, what you really find is that any tool can be abused. Yep. If you use the tool for in the right way, and in this case, right, if you coach, you know, the daily stand-up and people are leveraging the daily stand-up in the right way, it's a great tool to get the team on the same page, to get visibility to the team, to increase mm-hmm. communication. Um, because the, the, the thing that's my pet peeve is the canonical. You know, as an architect, I would like a mechanism by which to view builds so that I know they're complete at the end of a sprint. Really? That's a user story that you're going to use? You're going to use that canonical? It drives me crazy. But as you were talking through your concerns about the daily stand-up, I started thinking about the canonical. And I'm like, well, if you use it in the right way, mm-hmm. it's a great tool. But it's the abuse that's really the problem. Yeah. Is that and ma- what, go, go, go No, no, go okay. ahead. I was going to ask if that maps to like the maturity of the team or their awareness of agile principles or you know how to work as a team together. Like When they're first starting, say you've got 
junior engineers. I don't even want to say that. Say you have a, a brand new team that doesn't know how to work together, and you're very prescriptive at first. You're saying, okay, follow this, whether it's Scrum or whatever. Follow this prescribed set of, of things that we do, uh, roles and uh, the cadence and all that. And then as you get more familiar with the reasons behind it, why you're doing it, then you can start removing these practices or, or these other um, restrictions. Does that have to do with it is, is my question. I, I think it does. And I think that um, there is a state, there are three stages of human development in a certain skill or practice. The first is awkward, then mechanical, then natural. And to your point... Does that map to Shuhari? Uh, yeah, I, I might, think it yeah. does. Um, and and it's the, the natural where you understand the reasons why and you do it in whatever way that you think fits the why. And going to another case in point, which um, it is a counterexample to yours, Zach, um, I've worked with a team that was doing, um, you know, sprint planning and backlog estimation or user story estimation and just kind of looping on the same uh the same story for like several hours, maybe let's say three or four hours, never really getting to a conclusion about what the story is about, how large it is, and what priority it has like in a, in a release. And, you know, I, I observed for a long time because as an agile coach, I don't want to just jump in and cut off a bunch of dialogue that seemed to be going on forever. I actually thought any minute now they're going to converge and they just continue to diverge and continue to restate their points. And so then I thought, okay, what if we reimpose the strictures of the, the practice of planning poker? And like in five or ten minutes, they were in agreement about what the story was, what its size was, and where it, where it should land in terms of priority in the release. And so I thought, okay, this is actually kind of a validating moment that you can you can kick off the practice and say we're all adults here, and you know we we just need free flowing conversation, but. These are adults who circle and circle and circle, and eventually they're going to break off and say, "I can't work with you people. You're not you're not listening to me. You're not learning anything. This this whole uh, concept doesn't work." Yeah. So the um, <clears throat> Garrett kind of summarized, I, I think, your answer to your question, Vic, of why I asked this question is at its very core, the idea that any practice can be abused. Right, and I just wanted that to be reiterated. I was just curious what you see the most abuse on, and you know, again, for me, it's it's kind of this idea of the stand up. But you know, even in hearing some of the conversation, I asked, was it the practice that helped you get some of that resolution, or that helped you drive to a better place with your team? Was there one, ten, twenty, an infinite number of other ways you could have gotten to that by understanding what the principle in play was that helped you, you know, achieve it? So, sure. Maybe in a lot of our cases, we can go back and say, hey, a great way to, to increase alignment, to build transparency, to, you know, seek help is through a daily stand-up. What else is there? And how, and how do you understand getting to the root cause of what question you're answering or what you're seeking them to self-discover for themselves to develop a meaningful system of work that they're attached to? You know, how, how do you make that, that happen? Well, I, I mean, that's what I struggle with as a coach because I believe that when we, as coaches use practices as our tool for guiding teams towards you know better places of work we're limiting them on what they can discover and for you John for example you you may find that planning poker works very well for you and other people but for me it's not as good as something else right you know and unless I had unless my coach or my my you know somebody who's facilitating that space for me 
could help me <clears throat> get to the place where I could explore my own ideas to solve right. the problem? How, how would we have ever discovered that? Right. And that's a bit of why I talk about practice, you know. Being so weird. let me jump in real quick, Zach. Yep. So I worry that you're too focused on discovery. Um, I think there is value to training and giving people a toolbox to work with to start with. And I was reading a really interesting article this past week about the differences between Army Rangers and Navy SEALs. And one of the conclusions of the article was that the Navy SEALs are given a toolbox and and allowed to use it in the way they see best fit, whereas the Rangers are very um, regimented about how they use their toolbox. Coming back to your idea about self-discovery, I don't think that you could take, you know, aspiring Navy SEALs and say, hey guys, what do you think the best way to accomplish a mission is without giving them the tools first? So they go through, you know, 24 months of really intense training. They're giving them some very prescribed tools, but at the end of it, they're given the freedom to do whatever it is they think is necessary, which makes them so effective. So there is an opportunity for freedom, but I don't know that in a completely liberal sense of discovery is necessarily the best thing for teams to be successful in the short term, especially. I, I get your point, and, uh, and I agree with it. Um, I'm a bit uncomfortable with comparing, you know, a, somebody yeah. who, who potentially has their life on the line and is pursuing that as a place in their life where they could be in, you know, a dangerous situation with, with, with teams building software. Um, yeah, I get the livelihood, so, you know, situationally, I think the context is a little different, but I do understand your point. Um, I don't think there is a right, I don't think my my way, your way, John's, or Vic's way, or any way is going to be the right way, clearly. Um, over time, I at one point, I was very, I believed the same thing as you, Garrett. I believed that, that practices, the toolbox, is a wonderful way to encourage conversation and get people to start to go. I used to believe that. <laughs> And instead, I've, I've, I've now reached a point where I feel like it's an inhibitor for as far as I think my own personal growth is, because I'd like to see what else is possible. And I know that I'm not going to be the one to invent it. I'm frankly not smart or creative enough to come up with the next big thing in the Agile world. I'm going to rely on the other people uh, doing the work to discover it. And uh, I, I, I want to give them the space. So for me, discovery is far more important than the tools that I've learned over you know 10 years. Today. I, th- I, today. I think that there's a very interesting um, balance or perspective that's actually coming to bear here on coaching orientation, which is how are you balancing the three interests in this system of the um, the team's comfort level with you know the methodology that they're using, the stakeholders' interest in getting maximum output of value from that team. And you as a coach, um, learning and maturing and how to coach teams uh, towards being more productive. And, um, you know, I, I personally, I, I, try to, I try to lower my interests as low as I possibly can to maximize those other two. Um, and maybe, maybe that could be to my personal detriment. Um, I, I spend a lot of time reading and formulating and asking questions in these kinds of forums to satisfy my, my hunger for personal growth and all that. Um, but I think that there is a point at which you could say, you know, um, I could possibly be experimenting too much with my teams, you know. I, go ahead. Yeah, so the, what, what you said about the, the coaching stands I think is important, right? Because that, that's where I've found myself today. 
mm-hmm. is 99% of my time, if possible, will be in a place of facilitating people exploring. Yeah. I mean, really. And only with permission, mm-hmm. only with their explicit permission, mm-hmm. and when I believe it's absolutely necessary, do I ask to go into a teaching stance, a mentoring mm-hmm. stance. That's cool. Only that, with permission. That, that takes a lot of courage, I think, so, uh, to ask yeah. for. Again, I'd push back just a little bit here. Um, so if we go away from the military example, let's go to sports, right? Um, if you're going to coach a baseball team, right, I think it's better to give them some basic skills on how to throw a ball. Let's keep your elbow above your shoulder and your wrist above your elbow um, rather than, how do you think is the best way to throw a ball? Yeah. Um, but this is also a, it's also a place, right, where there is a clear right way, though. Yeah. There's um, a clear right way to throw a ball. I don't believe there's a right way to do anything when it comes to a complex, you know, software project. Uh, I think that there is a right way to do an individual practice. In other words, you can't say that you've given a team the poker planning tool. Poker planning? Planning poker. poker. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so planning true. poker tool until they have actually been successful in implementing it once. If they haven't actually experienced it with success... I think that they don't own that tool. They've only heard about it in a hypothetical situation like training. And so getting getting them to a state where they're aware of it and they understand it from using it is where you can say, okay, you guys have that tool now. You decide if you want to use it or not, but you know, I've, I've fulfilled my end of the contract as a coach by giving it to you, seeing you through using it. I don't know if there's a clear right way when it comes to sports either. Um, going back there, I mean, I've seen a lot of very successful sidearm pitchers, underhand delivery pitchers. Look at Matt Stafford as a quarterback who's got a very unique throwing um, method. And any coach who comes in and tries to, like, improve that is going to meet with disastrous effects. That coach will be fired because the team is going to tank because Matt can't throw the touchdowns he needs to. So I don't know if I believe that. But. Yeah, military and sports mm-hmm. analogies to coaching yeah, have We're, made me uncomfortable. Yeah. It, just doesn't <laughs> well, feel, it doesn't feel right. And at yeah. least it, where I'm at, I go, yeah, I get it, but it doesn't feel like yeah. that's where I am. Well, with it. that said, agile coaching probably took its term coaching away from sports. It's a derivative yeah. of the sports yeah. title. I don't know. Or, or it took it from really a professional coaching line of people, you know, one-on-one, yeah. individually. Yeah. The, so, the whole arc and art of of. of Facilitating, yeah, yeah. I try to look at it from an executive coaching standpoint, but just again, got its name, term, probably derived from sports. So could could have. So again, back to the pitching analogy, right? Mm -hmm. There are umpteen ways to actually pitch the ball, number of different pitches, but you need to have a toolbox. You need to have some basic skills and some coaching around that, and then you can do discovery afterwards. So I think there's definitely value in looking at some of these practices and experimenting with all these practices. Um, and it's important for coaches to set that baseline and to give them that tool set in order for teams to be successful. So from an agile perspective that's values and principles, we believe that we have to first give them practices to set the context yeah. for our principles. I agree. Is that yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, see, I'm, and I'm, I used to be there one day. Or yeah. one, I, yeah, at, yeah. One, at one point in my life, yeah. I was there and I believed that strongly. And I don't and want I've, to change I've, I've abandoned. No, please don't. Because God, no, it's from, from being let go of engagements. Nobody will change me. Um, well, I, I um, like it. You, ex, you explore the, um, the already accepted. I would, I would say that you, you're willing to re-examine things that are foregone conclusions for the majority of agile practitioners and coaches, which is cool. Um, I don't. I don't feel comfortable probably ex- re-examining as much as you do, but I'm. I'm always interested in finding out what you discover. 
do we have time, John, to go into one more topic for you? And by the way, great topic. I yeah. love that conversation. Yeah, yeah. I'm just glad I got people to disagree with me. I'm happy yeah. on that. That makes me feel good. That means, exactly. that means I'm doing it right when I know I'm We literally I'm just, just have five minutes for this one. <laughs> okay. And it's not a deep topic, I don't think. So kick us off on thinking okay. large and small. Okay, so basically um, I discovered just this morning that in Japan um, there is a consultancy that has successfully conducted an open space event with 1900 pharmaceutical sales reps. Wow. So that and, and and the reason why this is significant for me is because I found this out through an email thread that started off with a person who a number of years ago sent uh, to listserv uh, questions about whether open space is even viable in the Japanese culture. Um, so you can see that that is just a huge evolution and progression. Uh, to me, it's significant because it blows away a lot of the the preconceived notions of you know just Japanese professionals being very um, reserved and filtering a lot of their thoughts from public examination, uh, etc. But beyond that, then I started thinking, okay, what are the what are the preconceived notions that I'm currently applying to open space? Um, because I, I think that. Um, Right now, I've been saying, well, you know, maybe um, as an element of open space agility, you know, you could lay on top of something such as the, the agile, well, scaled agile framework in the enterprise, this OSA cadence of maybe having two large open spaces a year, or maybe even one per 10 sprints, which is maybe a quarter, a third of a year. What would be the possibility of thinking small? In other words, could you have an open space event after every single sprint? And the conclusion that I'm coming to, though I have absolutely no empirical evidence, is of course you can. In fact, you could have a two-hour open space or a 90-minute open space where you pre-populate the marketplace with topics. And as soon as, say, a sprint review is over, before or after you've done a retrospective but not yet plan the next sprint, you could have the uh, meeting rooms pre-assigned. Everybody self-selects which meeting rooms they're going to go to or butterflies in between them and covers just one topic per room. And there is only one column of 90-minute space, 90-minute uh, time to do that. You could have 20 rooms um, going on concurrently for just 90 minutes. It's like one slice off of the open space uh, sushi, if and you will. And then bringing sashimi. back, like like evening news style, bringing yes. back all the learnings and sharing them. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. And those could be published through email, um, which is one of the... Or onto a wiki. Or, or onto a wiki, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, you said pre-populating the marketplace. Is that a standard set, then, of, of marketplace items or questions that's going to be repeated no. sprint after sprint? Okay. No. So who, who does this pre-population? Why does it have to be pre-populated? Oh, just for the sake of saving time, I'm, right. I'm assuming that I have very stringent constraints imposed by the um, stakeholders who are saying we can't afford to be having one open space day every you know 10 working days great, can you give me two hours? And then I would say, okay, so we're going to virtually facilitate the marketplace by basically like if it was a convention, calling for papers, which just means send in your topics, and we just start uh, slotting them into meeting rooms. And um, the uh, participants of the open space simply read a list of all the topics in the rooms they're assigned to and go to them accordingly. You know, 
John, the in the core commitments, you know, the the decision model, deciding model, you know, method. Mm-hmm. So for me, with this idea, it's interesting. I would be um, right in the middle, you know, the idea of dig a hole. Well, thumbs up. I'll take the shovel and start. And otherwise, mm-hmm. well, if you give me the shovel, I would try it. Yeah, sounds interesting. Um, I, I would be on board. It's an interesting thing to try. Um, I know for me personally, I'd have reservations about the mental capacity I would have to be able to do an event like that at, at such regularity. Mm-hmm. I have a hard time going to open space conferences within three months of each other just because I feel like I talk about so much and I hear so much and you learn so much. Like, you know, yeah. But otherwise, I'm just rehashing at some point and it just becomes repetitive to me. Um, but so it's it's a definitely something that I'd say, sure, I'll try. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have reservations going into it though, but it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, I just about the reservations one thing that that just doesn't feel right is the pre-populating the marketplace i enjoy the open space circle the sense of community that's established the construction of the marketplace collaboratively together somehow i feel like it's just a lot it's become mechanical that way Mm -hmm. without that thing because for me it's just personally important but yeah i I just strip it out in my model just because i'm trying to lower the overhead oh you'd have to yeah i realize it's, it's coming in at a cost like the whole open space uh, structure obviously has its purposes. I mean, Harris, Harrison Owen is a genius in my opinion, and he's also very empirically driven, so my guess is that he's arrived at this OST, open space technology, having done a lot of trial and error and figured out like what works the most. How much overlap with the individual teams and their their continuous right. improvement practices? How much overlap do you think this, does it step on it in a potentially... I ask myself the same question. One of the things that's uh, occurring to me is that when we have, um, for example, training for new members of the teams or the program, uh, often there's a very long backlog. Like you might have to wait three or four months to get trained. And so one of the things that we've done as a workaround is create these two-hour deep dives on individual topics about Scrum or, or Agile in general. And I thought, well, what you could do then is with each of these open spaces, there could be actual deep dive modules to, um, I guess you could say circumvent formal training, you know, two or three day uh, training. So the people that are the newcomers and being initiated into Agile can go and pick up that training. Um, people who are more advanced can self-direct themselves into very, very advanced topics and everybody gets kind of enriched. Um, and it's not specific to the team's um, challenges at the time. It's really about the larger organization uh, creating more depth of understanding. So I think you really hit on something there about the long, larger organization. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is a solution for individual teams to have an open space opportunity to communicate. Mm-hmm. I think it really is an opportunity for like teams who have similar problems but don't know that other teams are solving those problems. Um, and I find that often, that when I work across teams, that one team is implementing a solution to a problem of another team, they have no idea. And the other te- team's trying to reinvent the wheel and say, hey, did you go talk to Jack? Did you go t- talk to Mary? Because they're doing the exact same thing. So I kind of lean towards the model of once a quarter, or maybe twice a year, where you go across the whole company or an organization and say, hey, all ten teams or all five teams. Let's do. Let's take a day, maybe yeah. even two days. Let's go crazy yeah. <laughs> and talk about a lot of the common problems that we have. Because I think it's not only will you solve those problems, but it's much easier to justify to the stakeholders saying, "Hey, stakeholders, there's impediments that we face, and the fact is, there's solutions out there that are easily accessible. And if you give us the opportunity to access the 
solutions to these impediments, in the long term, we're going to be much more efficient. We're going to deliver a lot more product. So the topic is called Thinking Large and Small. And when you first wrote it and started talking about open space, I was thinking of, you know, I always think of Lean Coffee as a very small model, Mm -hmm. a small scale of open space. You you could kind of apply that, right? Um, And certainly, like, as a retrospective device, you can use Lean Coffees. And I have, and you have as well. Um, So I'm thinking that it's not too much of a stretch to to do exactly what you're saying, Mm -hmm. to just extend the Lean Coffees up a bit, have it an open space, have it across teams instead yeah. of just one one specific team. But and we currently yeah. use um, Agile Coffee as the vehicle for community of practice gatherings. So nice. Scrum yeah. masters right. get together, do Agile Coffee, yeah. uh, release train engineers, yeah. uh, product owners, etc. And you know, and it doesn't even have to be uh, unique to a role. It could just be like, hey, listen, folks, uh, if you've got something that's kind of eating on you and want to get these success stories, find something that uh, might be a solution, gather at a lean coffee that we'll be having. Yeah. So I think that brings us to the end of the episode. I wanted to, uh, first of all, thank my three guests here. Uh, Zach Boniker. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Vic. Uh, Garrett Brunda. Always a pleasure. And John Jorgensen. Thank you very much. The guys can be found either on Twitter or LinkedIn. You can look at the show notes, uh, which are online at agilecoffee.com slash episode 39, and find out um, you know how to reach out to us as well as uh, find any information on any of the, uh, the quotes or books or studies that we may have referenced here today. Uh, thanks again for listening. Enjoy your coffee with friends. Angel. Coffee.